Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Thank you very much. Welcome to the Slacktivist Action Group. Obviously, we have a new Prime Minister since last time, Theresa May. The Conservative Leadership Contest came down to Theresa May and Andrea Leadsom. Arguably a choice between shooting your own cock off and getting a sawn-off shotgun shoved up your ass, and then shooting your own cock off. <laughs> In the end, Andrea Ledsom, she had to drop out, didn't she? Why did she have to drop out? She wanted to manage the top job. In the end, she couldn't even manage her own CV. <laughs> On there, she had financial director, and then a few days later, it was changed, and we had deputy financial director. And as we know, the word deputy makes one hell of a lot of difference. All you've got to do is listen to the lyrics of Bob Marley's I Shot the Sheriff <laughs> to know how much difference the word deputy can make. <laughs> and the final nail in the coffin, wasn't it? She said, she said that she was better equipped to be Prime Minister because she was a parent. But let's remember David Cameron, Gordon Brown and Tony Blair were all parents and they all managed to fuck it up, didn't they? Yay! Tony Blair still insisting, even after the Chilcot report, that we live in a much safer world without Saddam Hussein. Now, I'm not sure I didn't prefer the more dangerous world with Saddam Hussein, a world when you could get on a train, see an unattended package, and think, ooh, I think I'll have that. <laughs> And then Theresa May, what did she do first of all? She appointed Boris Johnson as our top diplomat. A man who had said about President Obama 
that he had always hated Britain because he was part Kenyan and who had called Hillary Clinton, said she had a steely blue stare, dyed blonde hair, and she looked like a sadistic nurse in a mental hospital. <laughs> so the first time Boris goes over to America and meets Hillary Clinton, I hope very much that he gets strapped to his chair by the CIA and then she, for a laugh, enters the room wearing a white coat and a hypodermic needle. <laughs> He's been compared to Donald Trump. Now, obviously, the referendum wasn't just about immigration. And let's face it, when it comes to jobs, robots have taken far more jobs from British people than immigrants have. And what have we just had coming back on our TV screens? <laughs> robot wars. <laughs> Watching robots fight each other for our entertainment. The robots will remember that when they're in charge. Because <laughs> what was Brexit really? Brexit was a vote, wasn't it? That said 52% of people didn't feel that globalisation was working for them. Now, why wasn't it working? Well, at least part of that is to do with austerity. The tragedy seems to be that now having vote leave, that austerity is to continue for that much longer. Essentially, you could compare Brexit Britain to somebody who'd spent years and years trying to suck their own knob by doing loads of yoga. And then just as they got to the stage where they could just about fit the end of their knob in their mouth, they'd sneezed and bitten the tip off. <laughs> With that analogy, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> would you please welcome to the stage Andrew Mitchell MP, Liz Hutchins from Friends of the Earth, and Chris Addison. Just to get ourselves going, we like yeah. to uh, make ourselves feel a little bit better by just asking the panel if there's maybe one thing they could share with the group that in an ideal world, they'd be a little less slack about. So if we start with you, Chris, could you offer something to us? I think I'd like to uh, stick to the resolution that I made to give up booze. <laughs> <laughs> Says but Chris, just having, having a little swig of his beer there. Yeah, I've, I'm terrible with... with I, every, every time... I mean, it's, it's not an uncommon thing, but I do find myself going, I must have less to drink, but I have children, so that's not going to happen. <laughs> I, I myself, I was going to offer to the, the group household chores. I'm not, I'm not great at household chores, but I, I tend to like to do them when I've had a drink. Yeah. yeah. So what I do is, often, if you come home late at night and you're a bit pissed, I always think doing the hoovering then is a good idea. Because then when you wake up the next day and you can't really remember what you've done the night before, always pleasantly surprised by the state of the lounge. <laughs> the idea that you've actually managed to do it with any degree of efficiency in that state You is don't something. tend to worry the, the, the morning after, do yeah. you? Why are the curtains on the floor? <laughs> <laughs> what about you, Liz? What can you, you offer to the group? Uh, I've been a real slacker at exercise, but yeah. um, actually I've got one of these running apps, and it's a zombie running app. <laughs> and so basically, as long as you can run faster than a lurch, you really you can run away from the zombies. I, I saw the, the advert for the zombie run ones, and yeah. they, they are pretty scary. It's essentially, you, as, you, if you, as you slow down, you just hear loads of voices in your headphones, don't you? You're going, I'm behind you, I'm behind you, run, run faster. 
And my heart rate was going through the roof yeah. just listening to it. I was thinking, I don't need to do any exercise now. I'm already using up plenty of calories. Andrew, what, what can you offer the group? Well, good evening. I think um, for me it's timekeeping and exercise, both of which I don't uh, do enough of and I need to be better. Your, your timekeeping tonight has been impeccable. Well, I came here on a bicycle and, uh, I, um, uh, and it means that if I'm late, I can't really blame uh, the government's transport policies. Um, but, you, you, uh, you didn't come via Dover tonight then, obviously. <laughs> Well, I wouldn't be here then because they're queued up all the way back for 15 miles. So. That's right. They, the, the, the people of Dover famously are uh, not, not big fans of immigrants, but having had loads of British people for 14 <laughs> hours on their doorstep, they, they welcome them. The, the they're just <laughs> weighing on the roadside like animals. That's it. <laughs> well, thank you very much for all coming along. Andrew, we do have a new government. We have uh, Theresa May in charge. Now, before we, we talk about that, we should say that in your seat... Um, for the last show, we had David Davis, now Minister for Brexit. The month before, we had Damien Green, now Minister for Work and Pensions. What chance do we have, Andrew, of you making it three out of three into the Cabinet for us fairly shortly? Well, I think, I think at the moment, zero, I'm afraid. But uh, it, they're both very good friends of mine. They're both very able people. Damien Green worked for Theresa May for many years in the Home Office. Uh, David Davis has been out of shadow office and office for nearly 10 years, and he's, um, he's, come, he's come back in now, and it's, I think it's a wonderful thing, firstly because he is the right guy to do this job. He has a mixture of tenacity, understanding. He's a very good negotiator. He's been a former minister for Europe, and he's enormously vigorous, and I think he will do a very good job for Britain, well, when given was, that we're leaving. He's the well, right man to when do When he was sat there last month, he was very confident about the ability of Britain to negotiate. He was comparing it to Norway and to Switzerland, saying that he would hope very much we would have this sort of Swiss model. Now, when he was Minister for Europe, he was known as Monsieur Non. Um, now that we've heard the French say that there's no chance of a single market without free movement of people, it, it appears that Monsieur Non may be meeting Monsieur Impossible. Well, he'll have to negotiate. It's a negotiation. And there's a, a successful negotiation is something that uh, has something for both sides in that negotiation. And, you know, living in London, as many people here tonight do, this is an international city. And we cannot put up the shutters to people coming into London. London's preeminence uh, relies on the fact that it's able to recruit people from across uh, Europe. And in the end of the day, there will have to be a deal. But I think it's worth noting that if Germany, for example, had decided to leave the European Union, uh, we would see it as a, a vote of confidence in Germany. We would not say that it showed the Germans lacked confidence. And there is a deal to be done, and we must therefore not succumb to pessimism. And my point is that David is the right guy to uh, do this deal. It's been a, it's been a quite extraordinary four weeks in it British is, politics. But you, you, it's I, very good of you side. to put this brave face on it, but having read your website, there is a, a quote from The Clash at the bottom of it. You were a Remainer yourself, and you said, if we stay, there will be trouble. If we leave, there will be double. And you, you must be feeling at the moment that you were possibly right with that quote. Well, I, I've been on the wrong side of all the points. I feel rather like the... Uh, the two blokes who were in 
Hiroshima when the uh, bomb fell on Hiroshima and they thought, yikes, we better get out of here. We better go and take refuge with our friends who live in Nagasaki. And that's where they, they went the, uh, the same day. And I supported Remain and we lost. I then supported Boris Johnson and he lost. And I then supported, actually I hoped that David Cameron would stay he went, then Boris, he went. And then Michael Gove was my final resting place. So, so and he went, so I got... I, I sort of got... I sort of got, could four, you, I sort of got four lemons in a row, really. Could you back a Tory government publicly, <laughs> just for us? And then with their, just in the hope that it will now collapse following you, this imprimatur that you have. So I think, here's, I think, my, here's my genuine question to you about, about the, the notion of David Davis as, as um, chief negotiator. During the week, as I'm sure you saw, he tweeted that as soon as he was given this uh, post that, uh, don't worry about this, guys, because uh, Germany will want to do a deal with us because they, we will give them free trade um, in, in return for, you know, three billion pounds worth of car ex uh, imports that, you know, that, that we have from that country. And France will want to protect its billions in food and Italy its billions in fashion and Poland its billions in manufacturing uh, exports to us. Um, so we will cut a deal with each of those countries. Uh, they all are key economies of Europe and we will do that deal. And those were gathered, those tweets, in a screenshot by a professor of EU law at Essex University who said, it's unfortunate the Minister for Brexit doesn't understand that the EU has sole competence over these trade agreements and these countries can't make those deals legally. Now, either he's being disingenuous or he's an idiot. Maybe he's disingenuous, which is a disingenuous idiot. Well, Ollie is a former special advisor. So no, Ollie's a fictional character, I am a voter who is extremely upset. So could you answer the question? Yes. I mean, the, the, reason, the reason why he's neither an idiot uh, nor deceiving you is because, in the end, a deal is going to be done. And the deal means that the Germans will want to be sure there is a deal so they can sell their cars, the French their cheeses, the Italians right. their products. So it's a question for him. I hope that's Not, the list he's going in with. So, cheese. Who's hands up? It's a Holland, question. France, great. It's a, it's, a, it's a question of how you get enough allies to do the deal. And every yeah. country, the myth about Europe is that countries don't pursue their own national interests. Of course right. they do. So he will be seeking to ensure he's got allies for the points of the deal he wants to do. Of course you're right. And yeah. he knows it, that, uh, that competence on these matters rests with the European Union. But, but the European Union is made up of 26, 27 countries. Yeah. And uh, in order to do a deal with all of them, you've got, there's got to be enough on their side of the table for them to want to do it. So I'm quite confident that he is right in seeking to point out the advantages of doing a free trade deal. Um, and that's what I hope we will achieve. We've got two years to do it. So the reason yes, Friends of the Earth was so, uh, so against Brexit was that um, a lot of our environmental protections come from Europe, which are 80% of all of the environmental protections are actually something that has come from Europe. And what's really terrifying now is that David Davis, the minister who's in charge of Brexit, is a climate denier. He's on record as saying he thinks the Earth is cooling, not warming. And uh, Andrea Leadsom, who's now been put in charge of uh, Department of the Environment, has called some of our you know, most important protections from things like our, our national forests and uh, wild spaces. She's saying that the protections for those and the protections um, for you know, our bees against pesticides are spirit crushing. Well, she, she, her, first, her first question when she was, became a 2015 Department of Energy, her first question to her department was, is climate change real? 
Now, you'd have thought that, as a parent, she would have been a little more keen to know what the, uh, the future of the planet looked like. Well, I don't, I, don't, I don't see that I need to... You know, I was a Remainer. I didn't want yeah. to leave. But on the point about the environment, most of these laws will remain in place. It, and it's, it and entirely it's, depends. Well, but they will remain in place. You know, there's, there's, a, there's a whole series of good reasons why Britain signed up to them. It wasn't just because we had to. And if you look, for example, at cleaning up the beaches in the North Sea, you cannot do that as Britain alone because you need the countries the other side to agree to do so as well. So there'll be plenty of issues where we have to negotiate and agree with our European partners, whether we're in the European Union or not. But a lot of the stuff that you and I both think is very important, that will stay after Brexit. I think that entirely depends, though, on what this new set of ministers does and to have leading figures who are on the wrong side of this debate, they question whether climate change is happening, they're saying that the environmental protections are red tape. You know, to be specific, there are things like uh, neonicotinoid pesticides, right, and they're the ones that are incredibly harmful to our bees. It's actually Europe that has said that they should be banned and the UK government has tried to overturn that ban year after year. Last year they were allowed to be used in farming. So I guess my concern is I don't feel I can trust this government uh, with our environmental protection. Okay, well, there's two, there's two points there. One, one is I had the pleasure last uh, Thursday of spending it with the Royal Sutton Killfield beekeepers who uh, I see for a barbecue once a year, and they told me that good progress had been made. Tiny, they were, tiny they steaks. They were pleased. <laughs> they, were very, they were very pleased with what the government was, was, was doing on this front, so that's one point. But, uh, but, but the, the, the second uh, key point uh, to make is that all these changes, they will have to go through Parliament. At the end of the day, Parliament will have to agree the deal that is done. So let's assume for a moment you were right that a wacky deal is going to come back, which doesn't respect the progress we've made on the environment and so forth. Then there's a lot of members of Parliament, about 400, who wanted to remain anyway. And they're not going to support a deal that they don't think is in Britain's interests. And that is part of Britain's interests. So I think I may not be able to um, relax you very much on this point, but I think there's everything to play for. And the point that Friends of the Earth make about the importance of, of these issues is one you know you should be making. There'll be plenty of people in Parliament who'll be making it too. Well, let's, let's talk about uh, neonicotinoids. Obviously, Andrea Leadsom, you're hoping, will reiterate the fact that the, you know, the EU ban that they should be. This, the, basically, bees, their colonies are collapsing because these pesticides, as I understand it, the bees get hooked on them, a bit like nicotine themselves, is that right? And they, they, sort of, they, they get all a bit high on them, and then they, they can't actually find their way home. And uh, the colonies collapse like that. So that's the reason why you, you're against the pesticides. Is that essentially it? <laughs> uh, this is what I'm, I'm paraphrasing from your website, I hope. That's exactly what the science says. Yes. Yeah, um, uh, yeah so, so really, uh, neonicotinoids are incredibly uh, dangerous to bees. And this is... Uh, very difficult this, to pronounce as well, I think. Neonics, yeah. we call them. Bees. Yeah. It's bees. Bees, perfect. Bees, Thank you very yeah. much. Yeah, bees. <laughs> Um, and the reason this is important is is not about you know uh, the potential for the cost of honey to go up or something like that. It's because bees are the pollinators for all of our vegetables and fruit, and it's central to uh, you know our food, but also our economy. And what we're seeing is a real collapse in bee populations. We've got an incredibly diverse range of different bees that do different jobs in our ecosystem, and uh, across across the range, there's uh, real signs of um, of species. Uh, collapse and that's to do with the pesticides but it's also to do with things like the um, change in, in farm 
techniques and how we use land. And that's why it's so scary to have someone like Andre Ledsom in charge of DEFRA, the department that's in charge of making these decisions. And it's why it's so scary that immediately after being appointed, she said, you know, that, that this is all about red tape and that, you know, farmers need to be freed from these restrictions. Actually, when you talk to a lot of farmers, they want to have a really clear regulatory framework where they're supported to do the right thing by nature, as well as being able to make profits from creating the food that we need. So we at the Selective Action Group, we like to have little projects to get involved with each month. And if you go on your website, you can uh, get a bee pack, can't you? To The idea is to attract bees to your house or, or whatever. The B&B, as you like to call it, some sort of bee hotel that you can create. And it's essentially wildflowers. So, see, a lot of people are scared of honeybees, but we shouldn't be frightened of them. They can only sting once. It kills them, so they, they don't really want to do it, do they? It's, it's not the world's greatest weapon, is it? Oh, you wouldn't want to see me when I'm angry because I'm about to lose half my abdomen. It's not... <laughs> They could, they could do better than that. But that's what you, you want. More wildflowers planted, basically, Liz. Yeah, um, plant wildflowers. But we've also got a bee app, um, which is about spotting bees. And it's like citizen science. It's and is it a zombie going out. behind the bee? <laughs> making sure. <laughs> uh, so it's citizen science. It's allowing us to work with the scientists to know where the bees are struggling and where they're thriving. And it allows us to kind of plot those on a, on a map. And we can then uh, find out what the real drivers of the of the problems are so everyone can download the app look on uh, my twitter feed and i've put hashtag slacktivist and everyone can find out the details but isn't it true that bees are now having a very good year having had a very bad start because of the change in the weather they're now doing extremely well that's what i learned at the beekeeper's summit oh, is, is in sutton coalfield it's, that, it's, it's just the barbecue at sutton coalfield <laughs> doing more well in that area they were quite drunk they were more optimistic that's <laughs> <laughs> ah, fine there are going to be cycles, aren't there? Due but to, it is, they're to, on an up cycle at the moment, aren't they? Uh, this, I mean, I think this year they, there was a problem with the early rain mm. and now they are doing better. But there are fundamental long-term trends like climate change which are causing a real problem and the change to our, our kind of whole farming system, which means we really should be worried. And, you know, this affects everyone and everyone can do their their bit to but Andrea, help protect bees. And a- it, it Andrea, she will, you know, she'll read all this stuff in the department, she'll understand, mm. and she may well change her mind. Yeah, well, that'd be nice. So the last, uh, the last <laughs> minister, the last minister... It's, it's happened before. Yeah. <laughs> I will never stand down from standing yeah. for this leadership. <laughs> yeah, oh, hang on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Maybe she'll start to read the literature and she'll go, oh, this is too hard. Yeah. That seems to be what happened. Yeah. I can't do this, this is too tricky. Or, or maybe she'll just change the literature if it doesn't quite add up to the truth. Yeah. The most astonishing thing about the, the leadership contest was the fact that pe- a lot of people clearly wanted to be Prime Minister and they got into it and went, oh, this is much, much harder than I imagined. <laughs> You're in politics! What did you think was going to happen? These people are being horrible to me. Have you seen the telly? But Andrea Ledsom, I mean, she was the reason she's been given the job, obviously, is that the, the Brexiteers were promising, in terms of agricultural subsidies, they were promising everything to everybody. And then so Theresa May has thought, well, you know, you go in there and, and sort it out then. It, I mean, if people you Brexit, are, you own it. Well, that, that's sort of it. They, they said, <laughs> basically, it. they said uh, that, that it's like giving her the job was like putting a fox in charge of a hen house. But you could compare it more, perhaps, to a serial pant wetter being charged with sorting out their own soiling in in some ways. <laughs> I wonder whether I mean there is re- a, a re- the real possibility that agriculture will be affected quite badly. Certainly, uh, you know, if not immediately in the next couple of years, in terms of 
subsidies that they receive from the EU and so forth, and what we as a, a, a now poorer and continually poorer country can, can do for them. How far does that kind of thing affect the practices that they need to enact, and, that, and how far does that have a knock-on effect on things like how much they're able to take into account the needs of the bees? Uh, so the fundamental European policy on this is the common agricultural policy and that oh. has built into it some um, sort of s subsidies and support for farmers to have kind of greener practices. Mm -hmm. Actually, it's incredibly widely criticised because it just doesn't do the job. And I guess the one silver lining about uh, Brexit is mm -hmm. that we can really look at those fundamentals again. The question is, do we have confidence in the politicians in mm -hmm. charge of this? So I, I think the thing... <laughs> and the thing for Friends of the Earth is we will encourage people to take individual action on bees, air pollution, you know, people should get involved in stopping fracking and so on. But fundamentally, this is a question of politics and people need to get involved in putting pressure on politicians to make the big decisions because actually you and I individually can't change an entire agricultural system, but we oh. can... We, we can have a go okay. and we can we can plant some some wildflower seeds and we should do those things yeah. but really what we need to do is put pressure and expose when the government does things like um, uh, allowing the use of neonics which they did just last year they were presented with all of the science and they knew that at a European Union level Europe had said no these are banned now and our government went over the heads of Europe and said actually we're going to allow, allow neonics to be used it's, it's bonkers and actually it's people getting involved in, in politics and saying you know we demand of our politicians that we have higher standards on these things. Well Andrew was mentioning beaches there, our beaches in the past before we joined the EU Famously, we were known apparently as the dirty man of Europe, which is a wonderful mental image, the idea of these Mediterranean countries <laughs> in their little tiny shorts and bikinis, and we're in some, some Mac in the background going, whoa, but that is Britain on an environmental level. But apparently we, we need to keep the pressure up, because although we've got cleaner beaches now, 14% chance of getting a, a viral infection from sewage, viral or bacterial infections. That's one in every seven swims, you've got a chance of swimming on a British beach and getting an infection. It's, it's not a great thing, is it? It's like Russian roulette. That's why I go swimming six times, watch somebody else go in, then I go in again. Perfect. That's it. <laughs> And it's true, and, and it's not just uh, beaches in the past and Friends of the Earth campaign for cleaner beaches, it's things like air pollution now. So our standards about the performance of vehicles are set at a, by the EU and um, you know things like the VW uh, um, cars that have been uh, exposed for lying mm, yeah. time and time Amazing. again about uh, the, the pollution standards. Actually, it goes much deeper than individual uh, companies. It's about... The the entire regulatory system and uh, our government has been pushing and pushing for weaker standards on air pollution at a European level. So quite often we're told, oh, you know, these, uh, these standards coming from Europe and they're being imposed on us in the UK uh, at the UK level. Actually, our government has been saying that um, we should have weaker standards of uh, vehicle emissions. They've been saying that we shouldn't move to having ultra-low emission zones in the centre of our cities so that we're protected from diesel vehicles and this is a, this is a real scandal because um, air pollution kills uh, brings about more early deaths than any other thing apart from smoking I mean it's a it's a crisis that if you know if people were being murdered in these on this scale we would definitely be having a different political reaction head over to Hulu this March where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long 
Catch the award-winning movie Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support. 100% online. You'll experience the all new Cerebral way an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way, so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code ACAST to get 15% off your first month. Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Chris, first of all, we should say congratulations uh, on your Directors Guild Award for, Thanks, for Veep. So, uh, Thank you. Very kind. Um, Chris, also up for an Emmy for Veep, but oh, you've, yeah. you've just been in America. Yes. And you, uh, you've been in L.A. Um, I understand yes. Donald Trump has a, a star on Hollywood Boulevard. Isn't that amazing? And they've just built a little wall around his Hollywood star. Yeah, I star. love that. Some, an artist just, just did a little wall. Didn't get the Mexicans to pay for it, though, which proves a point, I think. But as I understand it at the moment, it's net migration back to Mexico of Mexicans from America. So actually, if you built a wall on the Mexican border, you'd actually be keeping the Mexicans in. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't think he's... I mean, I think it's fair to say that one of the characteristics of Donald Trump is that he hasn't entirely thought all of this through. <laughs> I mean, that can be said about pretty much anything that Donald Trump ever... Says. In fact, there are no. The, one of the most extraordinary characteristics of the man is his inability to provide details on anything at all. He says, we've got, we've got the best people, we'll have great people. Trust me, he says. We're going to have great people. I've got good ideas, great ideas. What are the ideas? They're great ones, but what are they? They're great. Could you give us some details? Really great. He, he, he cannot be pressed to give chapter and verse on anything. He's extraordinary. Well, he's been compared to Boris Johnson. You were obviously there when Boris Johnson went over. I mean, it's, it's intriguing how what Boris... I mean, given what he said about Papua New Guinea, given that all, we're all looking forward to that state visit, given that he called them all cannibals, you just hope for his... For when he does actually go over there, they just take him to a sauna, and whilst he's in there, they all wander past the little window, peering in with their knives and forks, going, I couldn't manage a whole one, you know? Somebody tweeted a great thing the other day, which is a picture of him meeting, uh, meeting the president. I can't remember which country it was the president, but a huge, like a really built, square, tough, 
looking guy, and the look on uh, Johnson's face was he was utterly terrified, and it said, it said Boris uh, learning that uh, the, the, um, the, the Slavic, hard as nails Slavic presidents don't give a toss about Latin puns. <laughs> <laughs> because, because all of that sort of uh, uh, stuff works very well if you are, you know, here on Have I Got News For You, or persuading people to leave Europe, uh, or you're Hugh Grant in, a, in an American rom-com, but really, fundamentally, as... As a foreign secretary, it's not going to cut it. Well, they're both serial womanisers, him and Trump. Boris, three noted affairs, two loved children by women who aren't his wife, sending him around the world to exotic locations to be wined and dined. The man is a walking paternity suit, isn't he? <laughs> he sure... That would be an amazing thing if every, the UN brought a class action against him as a paternity suit. But immigration, isn't he? But well, we're going to have loads of immigrants turning up here trying to trace their own father in here. <laughs> now, he is... Um, it is an extra, it's like a joke on the world. It's the, most, it's the most extraordinary thing. Every meeting I had... I was, I was out for a week of meetings with various people last, last week, and every single meeting began with Americans who are staring into the abyss of a Trump presidency, saying to me, what did you guys fucking do? And that was, their, that was their opener. They can't believe that we voted out. And then they can't believe that... Well, the first, their main thing is they can't believe that Boris bottled it. Yeah, but that's I mean, the, that's the, the real there is, shock. Well, I mean, um, we, can, we can ask... Uh, what, you know, I think it came as a surprise to Andrew to find that, that Boris was bottled it. Andrew was there in the meeting waiting... In that room. To, to I con- was. ...congratulate the, the leader as he, as he came, uh, you know, came to announce his, um, his candidacy. Uh, but there was various theories as to what had happened, why Gove stabbed him in the back... The, one of the theories was it was a George Osborne master plan. And the, the, obviously the, the only flaw in that argument was that one of the, the people who conspicuously failed to gain from it was George Osborne. But then you remember how many economic targets he's missed, and you're thinking, well, it probably was a George Osborne master plan. Can you throw us, can you throw us in, any I don't, some I, clues, Andrew? I don't think I can, but I can tell you this, that, right. that oh. faced with a choice in politics of whether it's cock-up or conspiracy... It's almost always <laughs> yeah. it's almost it's almost always cock up, not conspiracy. Yeah. And I think that that, that uh, Michael Gove worked very closely with Boris and decided that he didn't have all the characteristics that were required to be the next the next prime minister. And, and, then, was, was and then Boris and then Boris decided maybe he was right, so he didn't. And was <laughs> the uh, was the was uh, Sarah Vine's email really accidentally sent somewhere? Or we, well, did it's that, probably well, unfair to ask Andrew that. He's unlikely to go. Well, I've got the inside line well, on this no, one. No, wait, no, not now, not. I've <laughs> <laughs> no, him on the ropes there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, I think I think that. Uh, you know, it's cock-up, not conspiracy. And you'd, you'd have to be a real conspiracy theorist, you know, even, even from in the thick of it, to yeah. actually think that was all carefully planned to position Gove to launch his, his, his escape hatch. Well, you, you talk about cock-ups rather than conspiracy. The, the new Minister for International Trade, Liam Fox, a man famous for his, for his cock-up. I mean, presumably Adam but, Werity or whatever is not going to be yeah. in these international trade meetings. But international trade, of all things, it's like she's gone, what did they have to resign for? Right, let's put them in that. It's like some kind of weird... It's like a, a parable where you turn up in hell and the devil puts you in the job you just fucked up. That's, it's amazing. She's, she's taken every person who is the least competent to do their particular ministerial brief and put them in. It's like, I don't know what she's doing. Well, it's like uh, a bet. There's, there's, another way, there's another way of looking at that. OK. Which is, <laughs> which is to well, say... Uh, which, is to, and which is to say that she's got the three key Brexiteers. Yeah. 
who uh, have campaigned most of their lives to leave the European Union yeah. in the key spots. Well, Boris hasn't. No, no, no. Boris hasn't, well, hasn't no, campaigned actually, most of his life. In February, he was saying we should stay in the EU. Well, uh, Boris, no. Boris had two, didn't he? Have, he had two letters as to which way he was going to go. Two speeches. Like, yeah, like, went, <laughs> and then he looked at one and thought, no, there's not enough jokes in that. I'll go, I'll go <laughs> the other one. Well, no, let, me, let me let you into a secret. I put Boris on... You may well think this was a terrible error, but I put Boris on the candidates list in 1992. And the then Prime Minister complained uh, like mad about it, John Major, because he said that Boris is sitting in Brussels as a Telegraph journalist writing disobliging articles about what the British government is doing in Europe and about Europe. He's a Eurosceptic and he shouldn't be on the candidates list. And I said that I thought he was a genuine Tory and he should therefore be on the list. Now, he has always been a Eurosceptic. He may, he, within the Eurosceptic box, he may have moved up and down, but it is not true to say that he is not a Eurosceptic. Well, what? but then, then what he probably is, is uh, I mean, the particular variety of cock that he is, is a weathercock. And, and he, he seems to, he changes his position depending on what seems to be the good thing to say at that moment. Well, and that's I, what's... I'm making two points. I'm saying that, first of all, he... He is a Eurosceptic. But how can I know and that? Because he says Well, I just everything. told you, the 19, in 1992... I know that was what you told me, but he's told me other things since. And well, he, he will continue to tell me other things as... The, as the, thing, the thing about these three... My other point is this. The thing about these three is that they are, they are Brexiteer campaigners. They led the campaign. Sure, yeah. 17 million Britons agreed with them and yeah. followed them. So it's right that they should be the people who negotiate and implement the result of something they've campaigned for passionately. And, you know, maybe they will screw it up, but I don't think they will, and I think they will get a good deal for Britain, and they're the right people to place in that position, rather than, you know, say that uh, where the Werity relationship puts it, puts it at all. Yeah, yeah. They're the right people to go out there and negotiate for their country. So the problem, the problem with what you say about politicians, that they're all a bunch of tossers, is that actually some oh, no, politicians... Oh, no, 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 I would never say Some that. politicians... Well, I, in fact, I have never I'm said extrapolating, that. I'm extrapolating yeah, you what are, you said you tonight. I would, no, I, I'm, I'm, I've gone for politicians who are tossers, so but, that but, I, but you know, there are there are a few, and you know, yeah, let's course. let's assume that some of those three are in this category who believe strongly in something and want to go and want to go and negotiate for it. And I think we should wish them well and hope they are successful. Well, let's have a look at the, the some of the other appointments. Your your wife, as I understand it, is a GP. Your daughter was a doctor as well. Jeremy Hunt, obviously, loads of people were celebrating the fact that he was getting the sack, and then. Cruelly, he was found that he was actually keeping his job. But it turns out it was possibly most cruel in actually on him, because by all accounts, he was hoping that he would be relieved of his job as well and actually has to go back and do it. Well, he definitely wasn't hoping to be relieved. Whatever you think about Jeremy Hunt, he is very committed to the reforming the NHS and he wanted to stay. There is no question about that. Uh, it is true that um, my daughter particularly wrote an article in The Guardian which got half a million hits in two days saying that David Cameron should sack him. Um, and she does not, she's a junior hospital doctor and I do think that it's a fair point that we have managed to alienate 58,000 of the most uh, idealistic, the most motivated, uh, the, 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 some of the best younger people in our country, the 58,000 junior hospital doctors, and we have to put that, that right. But on the other hand, the Secretary of State for Health has to manage the health resource. He's very committed to trying to make the health service better. And I hope that uh, we can, now that he's been reappointed, that he can get the relationship with the junior hospital but doctors right. We, you know, obviously during the Brexit campaign, there was that bus. It said we send the EU 350 million a week. Uh, let's instead spend it on the NHS. We can't trust anything we see on a bus now, can we? 
you get on a 73 now, goes completely in the other direction. You come down and say hello to the driver, what's going on? He goes, well, yeah, it only said 73. Well, that wasn't what it was in meant fact, to 52. say. It was a mistake. It was merely an aspiration. That's all it was. Well, I was a Remainer. I wasn't responsible for the... Fair enough. Yeah, well, but, let's but, talk about your, 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 your passion. You, you were the International Development Secretary. That is your, your passion. We have Pretty Patel in that department. She herself was a Brexiteer. Most famous, uh, perhaps, for being in favour of bringing back the death penalty. Yeah. There would be some people who would be arguing that she could use a little bit of international development herself. Well, I think she'll be very good. She's just taken over. We must give her her chance. Everyone has to do these jobs in their own way. But, but for me, international development is the most important issue for our children and our grandchildren's future. We live in a, in a very dangerous world. The huge threats to Britain are from climate change, from migration and from terrorism. And those are three issues. At the heart of dealing with them is international development. It's helping build stronger and more prosperous and conflict-free communities overseas. And, you know, we're not making great progress. Syria is the greatest catastrophe of our age. The effects of Syria will, will uh, replicate across uh, Europe and the Middle East now for one or more generations. But nevertheless, it is through international development that we make a very unequal world uh, easier for people who live in dire and desperate poverty. Tackling conflict and building prosperity is in our interests uh, just as much as it is in you the interests of people You say that Priti Patel will do a good job, but she was on record for suggesting that the Department for International Development itself should be abolished. Well, so I think those remarks were taken out of context. And what you must now do, I think, is to watch and see what she does. She's inherited a policy of the government that we are committed. And it was a, you know, it was a Tory-led coalition that implemented... The, the commitment, the financial commitment that we promised to do. We promised the poorest people in the world that we would stand by them and we would find this money. And I'm personally very proud to have served in a government which, in spite of the austerity in Britain, stuck by its promises to the poorest people in the world. What, and I think we should be very proud of that. Yeah. What do you think will happen now? Because, because you know, obviously economic signs aren't great and it's looking like, you know, we will tip into recession and that, uh, you know, at best we will have fewer resources um, to spread around. What will happen to the international development portfolio when those things, well, if, let's say, if yeah. those things begin to bite? Well, the, the beauty of the commitment is it isn't a financial sum. It is a percentage of our gross national income. So if you're right, I profoundly hope you're not, yeah. that there was to be a reduction in our gross national income, then there will be a reduction pro rata uh, for the 0.7. Now, uh, you know, I very much hope that won't be the case, but, but the reason why the 0.7 is right, and it's right to commit to the 0.7 and not to a financial figure, is because that gives the elasticity to um, uh, accept that when times are financially difficult in our economy, there needs to be a minor correction, and it comes through the 0.7. So, and Andrew was talking there about climate change being the, the big issue of our time. Obviously, in terms of there is a fracking that's just been allowed in North Yorkshire. You, Friends of the Earth, are appealing against that uh, on the grounds that one of the things that your opinion is that there is water contamination. It can contaminate the drinking water. Essentially, it's, it's pushing lots of stuff into the earth to release trapped gas. That's what fracking is. 
it's effectively giving the earth an enema and making it fart. Is that, that's essentially <laughs> what it is, but often the earth doesn't just fart, it follows through as well. That's... <laughs> It's one of the best descriptions of fracking I've ever Excellent. heard. Excellent. <laughs> it won't be appearing on your website, though, right? That's not, that's not a thing that's... <laughs> and, and the reason we're so against fracking is it is about local impact and it is about the water contamination and, uh, you know, the industrialisation of rural landscapes. And partly that's why everywhere fracking is proposed, local people say they don't want it. And, and so those local impacts are, are what Friends of the Earth objects to. But we also object to the idea of trying to get every single bit of fossil fuel out of the ground and burning it in the context where we know we have to get off this stuff. We need to get off our addiction uh, to fossil fuels, both because of climate change, and it's, you know, it is an existential threat to humanity, um, and also because we know that uh, economies that have moved to uh, base their energy sources off renewable energy and they've become more efficient, they're the economies that are doing better um, in terms of growth, but also uh, they're sort of better for people in terms of creating more jobs. And the thing about fracking is it's just such a pernicious idea that we're going to impose these, you know, huge industrial, um, like Texas, where they're um, puncturing the earth in hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of wells. And that's what you need in order to get serious volumes of of gas out out of the ground. And that's what they're trying to um, impose on local communities in the UK. And I think one of the things that's exciting about fracking is that um, we've got this huge kind of gloomy threat of, of climate change that people feel you know so overwhelmed by it's kind of hard to, hard to even think about and actually it's it's local people getting together to, to stand together and say no that has actually stopped the government so uh, George Osborne and David Cameron said they wanted to go all out for fracking and for the last five years not not a single well has been drilled and not a single bit of gas has been got out and that's you know that's what we can do by campaigning that's why everyone should get involved <laughs> okay well we, we're running out of time just one thing just to move on Chris you were in In the Loop I was a a very fine film in 2009 now that was the same year the same year that the Chilcot report started (laughs) surely we could all have just watched In the Loop and saved ourselves 10 million quid yep it's all there it's it's just an hour and 45 minutes that's all it takes yep just watch that I think that's what he did he was just trying to take the swearing out but, I mean, obviously, Tony Blair managed to convince the world Saddam Hussein had weapons of mass destruction. If he could do the same for us, we wouldn't need Trident whatsoever. So it's... So that would be the thing, just a 45-minute threat. Just get Campbell on it. That would, that's, that's all you need. I think the Chilcot report throws Labour into... It just, help, it just compounds the, the pain that Labour are going to feel for the next few years, really, because I was fighting with people on Twitter last night, which is a very edifying thing to do, and you certainly change hearts and minds, and I really guarantee it. <laughs> uh, uh, you should definitely do it, really seriously. But I was fighting with people on Twitter last night about this because I get very bored of the word Blairite being sort of flung around. But it's a, po- it's a poison word now, it's a politically poisoned word. And it's really unfortunate because this, the, the Chilcot report... Just, just throws this harsh light on the one of the most appalling chapters in modern political history that has unfortunately undermined all of the good that was done by that same government on on other subjects around it. And it's fascinating that it could this thing about the Chilcot report where everybody had that again cons- conspiracy theory that um, that people were trying to kind of uh, the Corbyn people might be trying to keep it under up. No, they they want it up. 
they want it out. They, everybody wants that out because as soon as that comes out, then this this brand is um, it, yeah, is, is poisoned further. He yeah, he, for yeah, the which is the most extraordinary extraordinary thing. The Chilcot report, it came out, it felt like catharsis. That will echo through uh, Labour history for a generation, I reckon. But people it, so will have another, it will have another effect, too, because the reaction to the Chilcot report will determine whether we continue to be a liberal country which intervenes successfully in places like Kosovo and Sierra Leone, or whether we, the effect of the Chilcot report means that we turn our backs on all of that. And if, God forbid, there was to be another Rwandan genocide, yeah. we would say we leave it to someone else, because the effect of Chilcot on Iraq has sapped our self-confidence for wars which are not absolutely essential. Do you think that it's possible... I mean, this would be my hope, that, that, that what we get from Chilcot is more of a sense that a government would need to present a case in a very transparent way in order to be able to, to take the country to war. Certainly. So that they would be able to do it because there are obviously, you know, I mean, this is a big discussion that since we're running out of time, we probably don't have time for. But, you know, there are instant instances in which you've, you know, you should go. You should go and, and, and yes, help. Yes, and Syria. But, you know, the, the, it was when the government lost the vote on Syria, which people will... But my friend David Davis was strongly against the yeah, government taking remember. action on Syria. I was very strongly in favour because yeah. I'm a muscular humanitarian. I believe that, that people who use military might to crush civilians, women and children, you know, they should, we should go after them and stop them from doing it. So the real issue over Chilcot is, firstly, that the intelligence was not properly interrogated. It was wrong. And secondly, that there was this form of sofa government which lacked mm. structure and accountability. So hopefully you, you mean, mend those sorry, two things. Sofa, just to, 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 to clarify, so by sofa government, you're talking about that Blairite yes, inner in a circle. circle. With everyone else locked out. Well, now there's a National Security Council. Right. So there is a structure uh, which we didn't have before. But, but my point is whether or not the House of Commons, my colleagues, uh, are so marked by the effect of Iraq that they will in future say no to Kosovo, mm. Sierra Leone, well, Maybe and we Rwanda. could get uh, a report on that and see uh, where, what the answer <laughs> might be. So... Because John's free now, he's got nothing on. <laughs> the, uh, and he's thorough. We know he's thorough. That's the one thing we know. <laughs> OK, well, we, we're sort of running out of time a little bit, so we, we're going to move towards our questions now, just to prime the audience to get, get ready. Just whilst you're thinking of your questions, let me tell you what we've got coming up for the Selectors Action Group. We have an August bank holiday special next month. Then on September the 26th, back here in the Soho Theatre, we have... Tim Lawton MP, Andrea Ledsom's campaign manager, so we can look forward to that. We also, along with them, we have Rich Hall, who'll be talking about the American election, and we have Julia Hartley Brewer. On October the 31st, we have Russell Howard and Vince Cable coming along, and on November the 28th, we have Henning Vane, we have Chuka Umuna MP, and we also have Fleet Street Fox. So hopefully some really good lineups. Get yourself along. Any questions from anybody listening on the podcast, get in contact with me at the website andyparsons.co.uk. If we've got a very quick question from anybody, we have a gentleman with his hand up there. Uh, it's Chris, and with people who have already resigned now rejoining Jeremy Corbyn's shadow ministerial team and a leadership election in September, what will happen to the Labour Party? What will happen to the Labour Party? Well, of course, Jeremy Corbyn himself uh, was asked to resign by David Cameron, wasn't he? David Cameron was extremely cross with Jeremy Corbyn because, of course, if Jeremy Corbyn, he thought, could marshal his own troops a little bit better, David Cameron might still be in a job. But it's not really the job of the leader of the opposition to keep the Prime Minister in power. 
Well, he's got a... I think he is going to win. He's got an enormous amount of support in the country, and the party in the country has absolutely turned its back on the Blairite traditions and wants to completely disown it. And the party in Parliament, the vast majority of the MPs, are not in that place. And uh, if he wins, they've got a straight choice. They either decide that they will get behind him or they'll have to leave and start another party or join the Liberal Democrats or join Paddy Ashdown's new thing. Because that works so well in the past, forming that extra party. they They have broken the highway code. They've got into the yellow box and they don't know how to get out of it. And from, you know, I don't wish to intrude in, in, into private grief in the Labour Party, but, from, <laughs> but, from where, where but why not? Where I'm sitting, it looks very, very difficult for them to find a way out of this well, impasse. Here's my question to, to, bo- to both of you, actually, because you're sort of both sides of this. So You're not in the audience, Chris. It seems this that, is, this is an audience question. This is a follow-up, this is a follow-up to this very point. Oh. Shush. So, <laughs> so, so the, Ger- the Corbyn supporters, kind of a, a large... A uh, number of the people who are pro-Corbyn seem to be, you know, young people who come from a background that uh, doesn't really respect the parliamentary uh, parliamentary power. It's not that interested in parliamentary power. What it, what they're interested in is social movements and what that can achieve politically. And um, now I'm old enough to to think that or I'm old enough. I mean, by which I mean I'm a hoary and long in the tooth enough to kind of uh, to to think that parliamentary power is the way that you enact change. How do you synthesise those two things? How do you make those two things work together? How can you take the idea of social uh, movements and fit them into parliamentary power so that actually the people at the grassroots can uh, have an effect on national policy? Yeah, so what Friends of the Earth is trying to do is mobilise people in society in order to change politics and change the political system, by which I don't mean kind of capitalism or socialism, I mean mend our broken political system so that ordinary people have agency over what our politicians mm-hmm. are doing. And so there are brilliant examples of, um, you know, this, this whole VW scandal with air pollution. It was people exposing, what you know, working together with organisations like Friends of the Earth and Greenpeace that exposed what governments were doing and are, are now forcing governments and forcing companies to take action and so I think there are millions of people in the UK but also in in the United States who joined Bernie Sanders and so on who are excited about the idea of people working Mm. together actually making a difference. Okay I'm gonna have to end you there Liz. Andrew on to you. Well I I think that you're right it is extremely dangerous and you know I'm not in favour of referenda not only because I think this one made a mistake but because referenda tend to be polarising, they pull people yeah, apart. Yeah. Whereas, whereas in the House of Commons, we, we don't reach for consensus. Perhaps we should, but we don't. We reach for common ground. So you're always trying to get people to accept at least part of the argument you're putting. And I think it is very dangerous when politics moves outside the House of Commons in, onto the street, uh, by which but I don't, by which, by which I don't mean, no, no, by which I don't mean that, that there shouldn't be huge movements. You know, the, the, the reason why we got to the point seven is because there are huge movements outside Parliament who wanted us to do it, and that's the way you influence parliamentarians and you kick them out after five years if you don't like their politics. But, but I think it is quite dangerous 
what Chris is talking about, not what you're talking about, about the good work that Friends of the Earth and other similar organisations do in, in mounting a campaign and making a point. The point that Chris is talking about is when you move outside of, of, of parliamentary democracy into direct action or, or movements of people who don't think it matters whether you win an election, but think it matters that you make a democratic point. And I think you know, that's where the Labour, a lot of the Labour Party has got to. These people who say it doesn't matter whether you win an election, let's, let's show that people don't support this particular policy. I think that's, that undermines democracy, and it's very dangerous. So, I mean, you know, obviously a lot of people have been slagging off young people going, well, not enough of them registered to vote for the, for the referendum. They were saying that more people have apparently downloaded Pokemon Go as an app than actually young people registered to vote. You're thinking, surely that's what we want to do with young people, get them to register via mobile phone. It would have been brilliant. The, the turnout would have been incredible. If they could have swiped right, text resigned to David Cameron, swiped left, <laughs> text wanker to Nigel Farage, turnout would have been incredible. Yeah. We just need to find different ways about going about the problem. Yeah. So, ladies and gentlemen, thank you very much. If you, obviously, if people are listening on the podcast, please subscribe to the podcast. Um, we'll just give them a quick moment. So it's one click away. We do like clicking on the Slacktivist Action Group. So just one click. Just a little pause whilst people click who are listening to the podcast. Okay, they've done that now, so that's perfect. Um, please spread the word about the Slacktivist Action Group. They say, don't they, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing, in which case we are lethal. So <laughs> thank you very much for coming. Hopefully we've all slightly uh, learned something today. Thank you very much to Chris from giving a perspective of the Americans. Plant some bees, or not bees, plant wildflowers. Plant Don't plant the bees, bees that kills them. That kills plant them. Plant some bees. Yeah. <laughs> Feel free to work out um, which one of Andrew Mitchell's three Brexiteers may or may not be a, a tosser. Feel, feel free to work that out. Obviously, it, they're saying that politics is boring. It has not been boring. Far from it, the last few weeks... We don't know what's going to happen. We don't know whether next month, in fact, whether our Foreign Secretary will still have a job. We do know that he's desperate at some point to be Prime Minister. Theresa May is a diabetic. What are the chances that he so desperately turns up in her office with a giant tray of Ferrero Rocher and goes, Ambassador would like to spoil you? We will find all these things, but thanks again. I think they've been a great panel, so would you please give it up? Chris Addison, Liz Hutchins from Friends of the Earth and Andrew Mitchell, MP. Good luck out there. Thank you very much. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.